0: you're listening to a sermon by hope bible church niagara we believe in unapologetic preaching unashamed adoration of jesus unceasing prayer unafraid witness and uncommon community if you have yet to do so we would love to have you join us for worship in god's word on sunday mornings for more information visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. thanks for listening so good to see you really great to hear you Singing praises unto the Lord this morning. Welcome to Hope Bible Church, Niagara. Uh, for those of you in our church family that you are you just just regular here every week, it's always good to see you. So glad to have you here with us on this holiday weekend. If you're a guest with us today, a special welcome to you. Really glad that you have uh, taken this time to come and to join us here at Hope Niagara for this worship service. And uh, if you are a guest here with us, maybe if it's your first time, or, or maybe it's your second or third time, but you haven't uh, personally connected with us yet, uh, other than attending, I just wanna ask you to do me a favor. Before you go today, if you would, just stop by the desk out in the lobby there, the welcome the Welcome Center. There's some people there that are eager to greet you. And uh, if you'd be willing, just to stop by and let them know that you are visiting here with us, or you're a guest here, it's your first time or first time in a long time, and just to stop by there, they are eager. They are eager to, to greet you, and also too, if you'd be willing to. Just leave your, your name and basic contact information. I'd like to just follow up with you briefly to say thanks for coming. Okay, just a personal connection. And uh, if you're willing to know, we're not going to sell your information or give it away to people. It's just, uh, just so we can just make that personal connection with you because we want you to feel welcome and we want to serve you in whatever way that we can. So that's one way that you could help us if you wouldn't mind doing that. Before you go, I just want to bring your attention three things uh, before we get into the message today. First of all, this coming Friday, so Friday May twenty sixth at seven PM, is a marriage event. It's like a mini conference. Uh, it's a marriage event here. It's not a wedding; like no, it's just a gathering, a time for uh, some teaching. There is going to be a panel discussion, and also some really intentional time for you and your spouse to connect together, and also to connect with other couples as well in the church. That's this Friday night. May the 26th at 7 p.m., and it's ideal for anyone who's married. Anyone who's getting married would be appropriate for them as well. So it's this Friday night. Also, too, uh, not next weekend, but the weekend after, something big going on here. Anybody know? Radiant is going on. That's right. Radiant. That's right. I love that it was a man that said that first. That's right. That's awesome. Yes. Yes, because that tells me he's ready, for. The, praying for that, for the women, absolutely. It's our Women's Conference, Annual Women's Conference, Radiant, June 2nd and 3rd, and we are a satellite location here in Niagara. So uh, please, ladies, I just want to encourage you to, to sign up for that, to attend that. If you have questions about that, wondering well, how do I register or you, anything else, again, just stop by the desk out there. They'll be glad to help you out with that. And then the following weekend, June 11th, Sunday, June 11th, is going to be a baptism service here. And we are very much looking forward to that, to seeing people take the, the, a really important step of obedience and discipleship following Jesus by entering the waters of baptism. And that's on June 11th. So we're looking forward to that. But the Sunday prior, June 4th, so two weekends from now, there's going to be a baptism class on that Sunday morning in one of the services. It just slips of mind now which service it's in. But if you are interested in baptism, maybe you've got questions about it, maybe you've got objections, and you want to just sort of sort those out and do a study of Scripture in a, in a setting where you're free to ask questions and there's a bit of back-and-forth interaction, I want to encourage you to sign up for that class. Again, just stop by the desk there, and they will help you find out how to get registered, and any questions you may have about that. Exciting about what God's doing in our church, Um, and we are uh, continuing in our teaching series in this season in the life of our church. Uh, I'm glad to be able to do that today. So our series is called, it's the afterlife. We're looking at this question of what happens when I die. And uh, today's message is a continuation of this series. We've covered a lot of ground But I'll just be honest with you that today's message is a subject I'd rather not preach on. I'd rather not talk about. And also, I suspect it's a subject you don't really want to hear about. But I cannot give you a fair biblical overview of the afterlife if I don't teach on the topic of hell. It's important for you to remember this at the outset. For me as a preacher, I'm not a salesman. I'm not a salesman. Instead, I'm an ambassador or a salesman is trying to sell you on something. I got something, I want to show you all the positive things here, and to get you interested, and to, just to try to convince you to try to sell you on something. That's not my role as a, as a pastor, and, and brother, sister, that's not your role as an evangelist either. No, instead, we're not called to be salespeople, we're called to be ambassadors. And what an ambassador does is they declare the message of the king. This is what the king says. And and they, they they can't just come and make up their own message. They can't put their own spin on it. They've got to take the message that's been given and declare it. And I think it's important for you to understand that at the beginning of this message, that this is my role when it comes to this subject. Well, any subject for that matter, but including this one on the subject of hell. I'm not a salesman. I'm an ambassador. And my assignment is to say what the king says. And it's important for you to know that the king says actually quite a bit. About this subject. In fact, nobody in Scripture says more about hell than Jesus. So we need to talk about it. And we can't say we've done a series on the afterlife if we don't address it. So here's my plan for today. I'm going to ask and try to answer five key questions on the subject of hell. So my five questions are this. First of all, we're going to look at what do we we mean by hell? Like, what are, we, what are we talking about when we talk about hell? Second question, why does hell exist? Why, why, why is there a hell? Wouldn't it be better if there wasn't one? Why is there a hell? Third question, what is hell like? You might have an inkling about what it might be like, but what does the Bible say that hell is like? Fourth question, how can a loving God send people to hell? Or, or how, do we, how do we reconcile the love of God with the wrath of God? And then the fifth question, how can I avoid going to hell when I die? That's my outline. That's where I'm going. Let's start with the, one, the first question here. What do we mean by hell? Well, just to get it clear, hell is an eternal dwelling in the afterlife for the devil, his demons and people who have never received the forgiveness of sins. That's what hell is. It's an eternal dwelling in the afterlife for the devil, his demons, and people who have never received the forgiveness of sins. Now, I think it's important for us to say this, and to try to say this as clearly as possible, because it occurs to me that, for some, you may never yet in your life have heard a biblical explanation of what hell even is. You've heard the word lots probably most frequently in conversations with people. It's frequently used. I hear it all the time as an adjective. So it's very you've heard the word. You've heard it in conversations. You've heard it, you've heard it in shows and TV shows. You've heard it in movies. You've heard about it in songs. If you have a certain vintage, you'll remember ACDC's song, Highway to Hell. If they're the authority on the subject, then hell is something to look forward to. A place where you party with your friends more contemporary, Billie Eilish, says that hell is where good girls go, whatever that's supposed to mean. But the reality is, is that the one certain source of truth on the subject of hell is the Bible. And I would posit to you that the Bible shows us that hell is an eternal, forever eternal dwelling. So it's a place, a dwelling, it's an eternal dwelling in the afterlife. For the devil, his demons, and people who've never received the forgiveness of sins. do you know that most Canadians, I said this at the outset of our series, most Canadians believe in an afterlife. Like if you don't believe in an afterlife, in this country you're actually in the minority. It's it's fascinating to me because we actually, as secular as we are, we're actually a very spiritual culture. 63% of Canadians believe in some kind of heaven. Now, there's, there's all kinds of variation in what, what a person means by that and what that might look like, but 63%, a majority of Canadians believe in some kind of heaven in the afterlife. A minority of, believe, of Canadians believe in hell. In fact, about 42% believe that such a thing may exist. I don't have stats on this, but a very, very small percentage of Canadians think that hell is a place they could ever end up. If it exists, most Canadians, most friends, neighbours, classmates, teammates that we have, most figure that if hell is real, it's something that's reserved for the worst of the worst. And certainly not for people like you or like me. I think it's critical for us to recognise the strategy that the devil employs in this culture on the subject of hell. The devil is not really out to scare you about hell. Actually, what the devil tries to do is he tries to convince you that it's not real. There's nothing to see here. Now, there's other cultures, other parts of the world where he uses fear. Here in our culture, he, he he would just downplay it and work overtime to get you thinking that it's not real. Nothing to see here. But if you listen to Jesus... Jesus has a very different perspective. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. Would you turn with me in the Bible? Because I want to show you what Jesus says, something he says about hell in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to go to a couple different texts today. We'll start with Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And you're going to hear Jesus say straight up, very matter-of-factly, that hell is real and that there's many people heading there. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. This is part of his sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. And this is, again, it's a, a, a thin slice of that sermon, but significant as we study our subject today. He says in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. See that word there? Destruction. He's talking about hell. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. In other words, there's a lot of people heading there. You say, well, why is that? Well, it's a wide path. And it feels, it seems, easy. It's what's natural in some ways. And then he says in verse 14, though the flip side of this, he says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Oh, now it comes into stronger relief. So there is a path to life. But a person might stand and evaluate both And the wide and easy way seems much wider and easier because the narrow way actually is very hard. Ask anybody who's followed Jesus for any significant length of time, and they will tell you it's not easy. It's good, but it's not easy. For sure, the Lord Jesus tells us that his burden is light. And it reminds us of the fact that anything that God calls us to do in this life, he empowers us by his spirit to do it. We do what we do in service of Jesus by the power that he supplies. It's wonderful. So we're, we're not on our own. We're given strength from God to do what he calls us to do. But that still doesn't make it easy. It's very difficult. And when you consider the demonic opposition, satanic attack, when you consider the weakness of our own flesh, and persecution, and all kinds of other trials and troubles along the way, it's good to follow Jesus, but it is very hard. And so Jesus says here, he says that when it comes to following him, it's hard, the, the way to life is a hard one. And those who find it, notice the end of verse 14, those who find it, that is finding the way to life, are few, are few. There's many, Jesus says, who are on the road to hell. By comparison, comparison, few travel the narrow road to heaven. It's not that people don't want to go to heaven. It's that they're not willing to acknowledge the Savior they need to get there or to submit to his lordship or to live their lives in obedience to God. The strategy of most, when the subject of hell comes up, is to ignore it, deny it, or if they sense it's true, to suppress it and try not to think about it. But Jesus is really clear. Not only is it something we ought to think about, but it's very real. It's an eternal dwelling in the afterlife for the devil, his demons, and people who've never received the forgiveness of sins. That's what hell is. Second question, why does hell exist? Hell exists for at least two reasons. Number one, hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. Hell exists for God to deal rightly, righteously, rightly, justly with Satan. Satan is the champion of all evil. He is bent on doing anything and everything that opposes God and undermines his authority. Contrary to common uh, depictions, the devil is not some little creature in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. No, instead, he's—he's—he nor is he some mythical creature that looks something like the Joker out of Batman. No, the devil is a real force of destruction. And uh, he, is, he often disguises himself as an angel of light, as someone maybe winsome, in certain contexts even likable, but he's anything But. The Bible calls him the destroyer, the accuser of the saints. He calls, the, the Bible calls him our adversary. Jesus says that Satan comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. You say to steal, kill, and destroy what? You. You. You know something? The devil hates you. And he knows his destruction is coming. But his project right now, between now and the end, when he is finally cast into the lake of fire, is he wants to take as many people as possible with him, including you. The fact is, loved ones, that Satan doesn't care if you're an atheist or an agnostic. He doesn't care if you're religious or irreligious. All he wants is to keep you from seeing the goodness of God, the beauty of Jesus, and the hope of the gospel. He don't care. You show up at church, oh, great, celebrate Christmas, fine, go do the Easter thing, whatever. Just don't see The goodness of God, the beauty of Jesus, or the hope of the gospel. He wants to take you down with him, and he will stop at nothing in the attempt. God will deal with the devil. God will crush him, the Bible says, underneath your feet, the feet of the believers. And one day he will cast him into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, looks forward to that day. And it says, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus himself describes the lake of fire or eternal hell as that which is prepared for the devil and his angels or demons, Matthew 25 and 41. that's, That's partly why hell exists. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. But there's another reason that hell exists. And this is where it gets a little more personal and I'm not kidding today. If, you, if somebody brought you today as, as their guest, they, are, they have been thinking for the last 10 minutes. I cannot believe that he's preaching on this subject today. When I brought, it's, they didn't know. They didn't know I was going there. Although they could have guessed it, we're in a series on the afterlife, but they didn't know. I didn't advertise this ahead of time. And there is a real sensitivity here. Let's let's call it, let's, these are difficult truths. But here's something you need to know: is that hell exists not only for God to deal righteously with Satan. But hell exists also for God to deal righteously with unrepentant sinners. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says that when Jesus returns, he will come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He goes on to say, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction... Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now that's a tough verse. That's a tough verse because you know and I know lots of good people who the Bible says will be cast away from the presence of the Lord. But as soon as we say that, we need to catch ourselves and stop ourselves and remember that Jesus said, only God is good. The Bible says that all have sinned. In fact, scripture says that none are righteous. We do good things. We have likable, we have likable character traits. But the reality is, is that as long as righteousness is whatever we say it is, as long as it's at our standard, we'll meet it and achieve it and overcome it every time. But the reality is, is that righteousness is not what we say it is. The standard for righteousness is God Himself. He's holy. And the reality is, as we think about it, and if we're honest with ourselves, we are bent towards sin. I mean, we like to do good things, and we want to help out others, but we're also bent towards self, and we're indifferent to the God who made us. In fact, as we think about it, sometimes if we're honest, the reason we like to do good things for others is because of how it makes us feel about ourselves. There is in us an inherent bent towards self, self self-righteousness, and sin, and in the midst of all, there is an ignoring of an indifference to the God who made all that there is, including us, and made us for maximal joy that's found in knowing him. But we've made other things our gods. We've made other things our source of satisfaction. We've found, we've tried to find our purpose in other people and other pursuits. We tried to find our satisfaction in all kinds of things other than God. And that, loved ones, leads to great misery. The reality is is that there is a holy God whose justice requires, whose holiness requires that sin be dealt with. It's impossible for God to be holy without also being just. And his justice demands that he deal with sin. And it will be dealt with in either one or two ways. Either by Jesus on the cross on our behalf, or by the sinner themselves. And this is why hell exists. For God to deal righteously with unrepentant sinners. You say, what's an unrepentant sinner? It's a sinner, that's anyone, that's me, who doesn't repent. That is, doesn't turn to Jesus and trust in him as the one who saves me. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with unrepentant sinners. Sinners. That's a biblical answer for the reason for hell. Now, we'll say a little more about it as we go forward, but I want to go to the next question. What is hell like? What is hell like? Now, this is where things get probably most uncomfortable because we're really getting into thinking about what is this experience that a person would encounter if they came under the wrath of God in the afterlife? Well, to give you a glimpse of that, I want to take you to a very serious, sobering passage in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. If you're using a pew Bible, there's there's, ones, there's Bibles just under the chairs in front of you. Just go to page 823. And uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now, I want you to see this text here. This is a, I believe that this passage is a parable. I say I believe it's a parable because there's, there's some students of scripture that think this is not a parable, that would say Jesus is telling a story here that really actually happened. That's plausible, but my sense of it is actually it is a parable. And there's lots of reasons for that, but I won't get sidetracked into the minutia here. What I see, though, here in this text is a story that Jesus tells, as he often did, to make a spiritual point. We call them parables. They're, They're stories that Jesus made up to teach a truth that people need to know and understand. And there's some really memorable parables. You've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. You've heard uh, the story of the the two brothers. You've heard different stories of Jesus. Well, here's one. When he tells the story about a man who went to hell. And my interest in this story this morning is to see what kind of information Jesus gives us about what hell is like. Understand this, that while the parables of Jesus are stories he made up, they're always true to life. In other words, yeah, it's a story that he came up with, but the, the story itself is something that's very plausible. It's, it's, it's true to life. There, there are such things as the things mentioned in the story. I'll show you what I mean when we read here. He's telling the story, he's aiming it at some religious people who assume themselves headed to heaven because of their knowledge of the Mosaic Law and because of their position in life. But Jesus shows them they're sorely mistaken. Here's the story. He says, verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple... And fine linen. In other words, he's got it going on in terms of fashion. He's well clothed. If you had purple clothing in the ancient world, it means you had money. Because purple, it was very expensive. If you like the color purple, it's pretty easy to get now. But in those days, in antiquity, it was at a great cost uh, to be able to get purple clothing. And also he has fine linen. My best understanding of this is that he's talking like right down to his underwear. Is very fine linen. He's got the finest clothes on. He's wearing Armani, Gucci, Prada. You get the idea. And notice too, he feasted sumptuously. I love that word, sumptuously. Sumptuously every day. It sounds delicious. He's got the, the choicest of foods. And at his gate, so he's got a mansion, right? If you got a gate, you're living in a nice house. Some of you got gates, you got a nice house. And at his gate was laid a poor man. Named Lazarus. Why was he laid there? Because he can't walk. He's crippled. At his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Interesting. See the name Lazarus. That's actually why some people think this is not a parable, but rather an actual true story that Jesus is telling. Because rare is the occasion when in a parable, Jesus would use a personal name. Now, my take on it is I think the name Lazarus in Jesus' parable here is very much on purpose. Because the name Lazarus means the one who God helps. And who is it that God helps? God helps those who know they can't help themselves. So here we have Lazarus. He's a poor man, covered, notice, with sores. Verse 21, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So what's he after? He's after the scraps. Right? he's waiting for garbage day when they roll the green Niagara region bin out to the street so he can get something out of the compost. That's the idea. So there he is. And moreover, notice middle verse 21, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. He like can't stop them, he's helpless. It's a pitiable scenario. We've got a wealthy man who's well clothed and getting very hefty, thank you very much, and at his gate is a poor man who can do nothing for himself. And all he wants is the compost from the kitchen. Now notice what happens. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That phrase there, Abraham's side, is a poetic way of talking about heaven. He's gone to heaven. He died and went to heaven. The rich man also died. And notice, he was buried. That means he had a funeral. Everybody showed up at it. The prime minister was there, the premier was there, the mayor showed up, all these dignitaries. There was maybe even a parade out to the cemetery and they cried big tears of grief and they laid flowers and then they went and wrote books about his life and paid tributes and built statues and hung paintings and plaques all around for him. Great, great lamentation over this great rich man who died. He was buried. And verse 23, but notice where he went. And in Hades, that's hell. And in Hades... Being noticed in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So Lazarus is in heaven and the rich man's in hell. Now, I should just say here, just to pause, I have not seen anywhere else in Scripture where we're told or taught that people in hell can see into heaven. So I'm still processing that. He asked me, is that, that, I I don't know. But Jesus wants us to imagine that that's the case. In verse 24, notice what the rich man does. He's in hell. It says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. People sometimes ask, is there... Is it the flames of hell we read in the Bible? Is it real, literal flames? I don't know. I will say this. As we read the descriptions of hell in the Bible, such as we have here, we should take away nothing less than this, that it's an awful place to be. But Abraham said, verse 25, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed. So a great gap, a great gulf has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. Interesting, the implication here is almost that Lazarus would go and minister mercy to this merciless rich man. But whatever the case, you can see here that Jesus is showing us that when it comes to the afterlife, your destination is fixed. You can change it now. You can change it now. Right up to your dying breath, your outcome can change. You can be going from hell-bound to heaven-bound. But once you pass from this life into the next, it's too late. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father... So this is the rich man again. Then I beg you, Father, send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they've got the scriptures, they've got the word of God. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, yeah, I, I know, they got the scriptures, they read they know it off by heart, but see, it isn't enough. You see, what they need to have happen is something miraculous, something spectacular. Then they'll believe. Verse 31, and he said to him, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's not that God wouldn't be willing to do such a thing, it's just that it won't work. Because the means by which we're saved, the means by which God works to bring us from death to life, is not through miraculous signs. But through the declaration of his word, of his truth. So here we've got a situation where the poor man is in heaven, not because he's poor, not because he was poor. He didn't go to heaven because he's poor, but because God helped him. And we've got a rich man who did evil and did not repent. And he finds himself in hell. Now, three lessons here that I take from this story that show us something of what hell is like. Number one, hell is a place of full, conscious awareness. People can think, talk, reason, remember, and feel. It's not a mystical dream world. It's not Narnia or something like that, where it's just sort of imaginary. It's not nothingness. It's conscious. It's a place of consciousness, of awareness. Second, hell is a place of misery. It's a place of misery. It lands on me. That phrase at the end of verse 24, I am in anguish. When you listen to what Jesus says about hell, it's super sobering. Matthew 8, verse 12, he calls it outer darkness. I'm terrified of the dark. I'm terrified of the dark. I am terrified of the i do not like total darkness. So I read that, outer darkness, and I, I tremble. He talks about it in Matthew 13, verses 41 and verse 50, as a fiery furnace. Mark 9, he calls it an unquenchable fire. Mark 25, sorry, Matthew 25, verse 46, he describes it as a place of eternal punishment. In Matthew 13, he says it's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's a logical sense to this. Just step back for a moment and realize that from a Christian worldview, we understand that all comfort and peace and joy and gladness all ultimately comes from God. The the good things that we enjoy, the, the pleasures that we experience, the gladness that's in our heart is ultimately owing to a gracious God who provides. If you remove God from the picture, if you will not have God in your picture then the logical outcome of that ultimately in the end is that you'll not have those good things either. See, one of the besetting follies of humanity is that we love the gifts, but we want nothing to do with the giver. But we forget or we, we don't see that the gifts, the good things that we have, are, are really evidences, expressions of God's kindness and mercy to people who frankly don't deserve it. You see what the, the problem with people is that we don't acknowledge that the good we have is ultimately from God. You've got, you've got this, this wonderful friendship with somebody that you so enjoy, it's so life-giving. Well, well who, who gave you that friend ultimately? Where did friendship come from? You've got a, a pet that brings you so much pleasure and, and enjoyment and, and emotional liftingness. And, and yet, but but where, does, where does that all come from? What good things do you have today? Maybe a good meal that you've enjoyed this week and the memory of it is still with you. Man, that was good steak. Wow, that sub was to die for. Whatever it is, where does it ultimately come from? But yet you would say you would say that still you don't want the giver? Well, the Bible shows us that the trajectory of the life that doesn't want God is that they get their wish in the end. That's why hell is a place of misery. Third, this is so critical for you to see. Hell is a place where no one repents. At no point, here we have this, this rich man in hell, At no point does he ever say he's sorry for his selfish life. He never expresses regret for his self-centeredness and lack of mercy. He's miserable. He describes himself as in anguish. But at no point does he cry out to God for mercy. At no point does he express sorrow for the life that he lived, this godless life that he lived. In fact, he insinuates that God didn't do enough for him, right? If only something more spectacular would happen. That's what I need for my brothers. No, what we find here is, and this is what, I think what unsettles so many people, let me just, very honestly, I think what unsettles so many people when we think about the subject of hell, in particular God sending people to hell, is that we envision in our minds a coming day when someone passes from this life into the next and they get to the end and they realize that they were wrong, that this whole thing about Jesus was true, that he really did die on the cross, he really did rise from the dead, that the Bible's true, and we envision we get to the end, into that place, and seeing, oh, I was wrong, and then turning around to God and saying, God, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you were right, I'm sorry, and that we envision that you know, they're, they're begging and pleading for mercy and God just heartlessly casts them into the hell. That is fiction, That's just in your head. That's not reality. That's not in the Bible. People don't repent in hell. They just continue on the road they've been on of not wanting God, not repenting, not turning to him. If you're unrepentant now and continue in that through the end, then you'll be unrepentant then. That's why the Bible says, Revelation 22 and 11, let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. And let the righteous go on in righteousness. Or to put it differently, in the afterlife, you'll remain in principle what you are already unless you turn. Nobody shows up in hell and turns over a new leaf. You see? Remember, eternal life is knowing God. That's what Jesus says, John 17, 3. Eternal life, yes, it's life forever, but what is it in his essence is knowing God. But if you will not know him, Then that's what your eternity will be too. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, There's only two kinds of people in the end those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. See, if you're indifferent to God and you don't want Him, the thing that makes me tremble is the reality that unless you turn, you'll get your wish. Hell is a place where no one repents. It's a place of full conscious awareness, a place of misery, and a place of no one where no one repents. Now, this leads to maybe the most serious question, or what would probably feel like the most pressing question. It's how can a loving God send people to hell? How do you reconcile God's love with God's wrath? Well, I don't have time to say everything there is to say about this, but let me say four things about this. Number one, four things for you to consider. Number one, love and wrath are not incompatible. Love and wrath are not incompatible. We imagine them to not go together. Somebody who's loving and somebody who's wrathful. But you know if you think about it, that's, that's not true. Love and wrath can go together together. They're not incompatible. One writes these words, listen to this quote. All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. Not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even they themselves, you get angry. True. Parents in the room, grandparents, even when it's that young person themselves that's destroying themselves, bringing destruction, you get angry about that. You get angry at them even because of what they're doing to their lives and how they're harming themselves. Becky Pippert wrote these words. Listen to this. She says, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Well, this doesn't answer everything but you can see that love and wrath are not incompatible. So, I, Psalm 145 verse 20 says, The Lord preserves all who loves him but the wicked he will destroy. They can go together and the same person. We see that in the Bible, and you see it in your life. So remember that. As you wrestle with this question, that love and wrath are not incompatible. Second, beware of cultural blinders. Beware of cultural blinders. You know what I mean by blinders? Like something that that blinds you, that keeps you from seeing. I was um, downtown Toronto a few weeks ago, and uh, it was after a Leafs game. I was walking down the street with a friend of mine, and there was a lot of police around. Apparently, they were expecting something to happen, and nothing really did. But as we're walking along the street, we came to a whole row of horses and with, with police on them. And um, the horses, they actually looked kind of cool. They had, like, visors on. They looked like hockey players. They had visors on their faces to protect them. But they also had blinders here to keep them because they want them focused. They want them distracted over here. But you know what blinders are? It's to, to keep... You can't see. The blinder blocks your view. We have cultural blinders. In our culture, we love Jesus on the topic of forgiveness, turn the other cheek, but hell and divine punishment, ah, that makes us indignant. You get upset about that. But here's the thing. Other cultures, in other parts of the world, this whole talk of loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and forgiveness is a real problem. Just as you and I might grate about the the teaching that we find in Scripture on hell, there's other places in the world where hell is not an issue. Divine justice is not an issue, but turning the other cheek, that just seems that seems unjust. It seems that's not right. Forgiveness. So we have to remember that partly how we feel about these things has to do with where we live in the world. And remember. As fallen people, in whatever culture we may be in, we are bound to find there's things in God's word that are going to offend us because of our sinful condition. We have to admit, though, also as we think about it, there is in us a desire for wrongs to be made right. Is there not? Is there not in us a hunger, a longing for justice? I want you to understand, again, this isn't the whole of the answer. But remember, loved ones, remember that what we have in part in the doctrine of hell is a kind of hope. You heard me right. Hope. Hope in the fact that there's coming a day that in this world full of injustice that God will bring about justice. That wrongs will be made right to a degree that is impossible for us to achieve. I mean, think about some of these stories we've heard and we seem to hear frequently about bombings where a person goes in and and takes out a whole slew of lives all at once, or a gunman walks in, or a woman walks into a place and shoots up an office place, or or goes in and, and shoots up a classroom of children. And there is in us a kind of rage about this. And if we're honest, this isn't very PC, but I'm just going to tell you how I think it is. There's a part of us, when we hear that that perpetrator died in the process, there's a part of us that feels disappointed that they didn't live to stand justice. And so we can hear the story and understand the situation and pour all of our violent anger against them and then execute them. There's a part of us that feels that way. But even then, even if we go through all that, all the destruction, all the carnage, how do you ever make this right? God will make it right. God will make it right. God will, in the end, bring hand many children back to their mothers. And he will meet out justice that's impossible for us to achieve. There is a hope that comes to us in the doctrine of hell that reminds us, that shows us that justice is coming. Think of places in the world where people with, without any due process are hauled in the stadiums and have hands and feet chopped off or are beheaded. And we hear these stories and we, we enrage within at the injustice. There is justice to come. That's why God can tell us, leave vengeance to me. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave vengeance to me. Well, how do I do? How do I actually turn the other cheek? I do it by faith in a God who will deal with it, and he can deal with it better than we can. See, this is true, but the doctrine of hell, the cultural blinders will keep us from seeing this. Leanne and I experienced this in a way that we'll never forget about 10 or 11 years ago. It was uh, early in the morning, and I, we were living in our house in the GTA, and I heard early in the morning... It wasn't usual, We lived near the airport, so we heard lots of air traffic. But this one particular moment, morning, I could hear a helicopter or helicopters flying around. And at first, I didn't pay any attention to it. But then I noticed that the sound wasn't going anywhere. Like, it was just sort of hovering around. I got to wondering, what's, what's going on out there? Why, is there? why is there helicopters in our neighborhood? And very quickly, we realized they were news helicopters... And we discovered soon after that what had happened is that about a block and a half from our home, a little boy, uh, 10 years old, was shot through the window of his living room, in his living room, shot dead, 10 years old. He was there, it happened in the night, he was home with his teenage brother, his mom was a single mom and she was at work, just trying to make ends meet, and they're sitting on the couch watching TV about 10 o'clock at night, and somebody with a gun came to the living room window, and shot the little boy through the window. Now, the police, their theory is this. They think it was a case of mistaken identity. They think what happened is that about a week earlier, that place was rented by a no-good criminal who had a lot of people out to get him. He moved out of this, that place, and mom and her two kids moved into that place. And they believe that whoever shot the little boy went to the window, thinking it was the guy that they are after, not seeing clearly, heartlessly put the gun to the window and shot the little one. I, I mean, I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget seeing footage of Mom showing up at the scene. And you can just imagine, running in, there's nothing she can do. And you know what else just adds insult to injury? Is that to this day, the police have never figured out who did it. Now, what do you do with that you believe in a God who will bring about justice. He will. Our culture bristles at the idea of hell, but also, too, we must hold forth the hope that justice will be served, that God will deal justly. Be careful, loved one, as you diminish talk about hell. I mean, nobody wants to talk. I don't want to stand here and preach this sermon. I've been pretty worked up about preaching this sermon because I know there's probably lots of people who don't want to hear it but we also gotta be honest about what we're cutting out, the truth that we're cutting out by not talking about it. And it's not just frightening stuff that makes us uneasy. It's justice, it's hope that in the end, things will be made right. So be careful what part of God's word you want to avoid. Love and wrath are not incompatible. Beware of cultural blinders. Third, beware of inherent self-righteousness. We're regularly blind to our own fallenness. Jesus told this parable to some people who presumed themselves headed for heaven just because of what they knew and who they were. But of course, they were terribly wrong. The only people going to heaven are people who are submitted to the truth of God's word, who are trusting in Jesus, who repent of their sin and turn to God for salvation. Beware of inherent self-righteousness that assumes a lot of things without submitting to the truth of God's word. forth. Note this, that in the end, God is praised for his just judgments. In the end, God is praised for his just judgments. Revelation 16, verse 7, God is praised with these words, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So is looking forward to the end, and there's no hint of injustice or unfairness here, or wrongdoing on God's part. There's mystery here. There's things that are hard for us to comprehend, and our fallenness and our finitude. We have a hard time putting these things together. But recognize that in the end, that God is God is praised, and God is worshipped for His perfect justice. Here's a verse that really helps me a lot. I go to this verse a lot. Genesis, um, Genesis eighteen twenty five. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? I go to that verse again and again. There's sometimes I wrestle, sometimes I really wrestle with the justice of God, with big realities that I have a hard time putting together, mixed feelings at time to time. Sometimes I grieve over things that happen. Sometimes I'm just at a loss to know what to do, what to think. I come back to this verse again and again and again. Shall not the judge of all the earth do What is right? I'll tell you when I think about this verse, I think about it often when I have someone I've known and someone I've loved who has died, and to my knowledge, they did not know Jesus. And there is a lot of people in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. It's tough. There's a couple things, I think. One, I remember the dying thief. And I remember that on the day Jesus died, there was a man beside him who in his dying breath cried out to Jesus to save him. And Jesus promised him he would. You know what? There's lots of people who left this world and you and I, honestly, we don't know what went down in those final moments. Maybe, maybe, in their heart, they cried out to the Lord who's full of mercy maybe, maybe they said in their hearts, Jesus, save me. And they meant it in faith. And the Lord did. You and I might be surprised someday when we'll see the mercy and the grace of God and people in heaven who we didn't think would be there. Now, I'm not going to fool myself about that. There's probably lots of people that don't do that. But it is plausible. So that's one thing I do. You know what else I do, though? I remind myself of Genesis 18, 25. It's that question. It's like the God asked me that question. Ross, shall not judge the judge? Shall not I, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? So I just rest in him. I, I trust you, Lord. It's too big for me. I'm not the judge at the end of the day, but I trust you. I trust you, God. I put all of my, the weight of my confidence on you that you're going to do what is right. I see you always do what is right. You promise you'll do what is right, so I just, I'm going to bank on you. And that, that's where I go with that. I just trust him with it. In the end, God is praised for his just judgments. There's a lot more that we could say about hell, maybe things we should say about it, but I, I want to be sure to end here with the fifth and final question. How do I avoid going to hell? How do I avoid going to hell? To answer this question, I'm just gonna, I just want to read you some verses, and just, I'm just going to say a few things about each of these verses. The big thing is I just want you to hear and see these verses of Scripture that I think answer the question for us. But notice this, notice this, notice this. Hell is totally avoidable. Totally avoidable. There isn't anybody here in this room or in the sound of my voice watching online, listening to podcasts right now, who, is, who has to go to hell. This can be changed. This can be dealt with. And Jesus made a way for it to be changed and dealt with. Look at this verse. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. Brother, sister, as you wrestle with this, don't miss God's missional heart in all these things. He loved the world. He's, he's not indifferent to the plight of the unrepentant. He loves the world. And he loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Think about the weightiness of that statement if you know the story of Jesus. He came into the world and he lived a sinless life and then he died on the cross to pay for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened on the cross? He endured the wrath of God for you and for me. We can say in a real sense on that Good Friday, that first Good Friday, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was there enduring hell for us. Because at the heart of it, it is the experience of hell is being subject to the wrath of God. Jesus, in a sense, went through hell for you so you don't have to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die for you, to raise the life for you, that whoever believes in him should not perish. They're not going to go to hell. But have eternal life. That's heaven. So how do I get this? Well, the verse says... Believe in him. Trust him. That's what you're called to do. You said, you said at the outset that that way is hard. Oh yeah, following Jesus is hard. If you're signing up for easy, Jesus isn't going to be it. But it's good. It's, it's everything to have this Jesus as your friend, as the one who leads you and guides you. He's going to bring you safely home. And there's going to be some hard days along the way, but there's an endless supply of great days to come. Whoever believes in him should not perish. So you don't have to perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's look at another verse. Romans six twenty three: The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do I avoid going to hell? I need this Jesus. I need to believe on him. When I put my trust in this Jesus, I'm guaranteed to avoid hell and given a home in heaven. Look at another verse here. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Jesus did the work. He's the savior. By the way, just as an aside here, notice we're reminded again about the love of God. We've seen that a couple times here, haven't we? Remember this. The reason that we know and believe that God is loving is because we have this biblical text that tells us that. It's that same biblical text that also tells us about the wrath of God and hell. So as I wrestle with the subject of hell, don't lose sight of the fact that it's the same book that maybe gives me trouble on one subject that also gives me hope and joy in another subject. You see? It's the same thing. Like, why else would you think God is loving? The last century, there's more bloodshed than any century before. Look at, look at nature. You say, well, it's beautiful. Yeah, until it all dies. What, what evidence is there that God... How do you know that God loves? God loves because he says in his word. So the same book tells us about both things. And he demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't miss the missional heart of God to stop at nothing to save you. Let's look at another verse here. Romans ten thirteen, For everyone... Everyone, who's in everyone? Is that you? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from the wrath of God. You say, so what, how do I avoid hell? Call on the name of the Lord. Say, Jesus, save me. I need you, Jesus. I absolutely need you. You can say that out loud just like I'm talking to you right now. You can say it in your head, in your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking. If you call on the name of the Lord in faith, you will be saved. Saved. You see, Jesus endured hell on the cross so that you will never end up there in eternity. In fact, think of it this way if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, then this world is as close to hell as you'll ever get. If you're not in Christ, then this world is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. So we come to Jesus. We trust him. Let me finish with these simple things. First of all, church family, we cannot hear a message about hell without being struck in our hearts about the urgency of our mission. We say that our purpose is is to fulfill the Great Commission in the Spirit of the Great Commandment. In other words, we are here to make disciples of Jesus. We are here to be ambassadors of the truth, to rescue people from a lost eternity. We can't hear teaching. I can't preach a sermon. We can't hear teaching on hell without being struck in our hearts about the urgency of the mission. Too many other things take up our focus, our energy, and our time. And for me, I am personally challenged to be watchful for this as a pastor of our church. There are people who are heading to hell, and we have a message about a Savior who can rescue them. We can't hear this message without being struck with that. Also, I can't preach a sermon like this, and we can't hear a sermon like this without having our hearts broken for lost people and to be renewed in our urgency to pray to pray that they would hear the good news, to pray for boldness in sharing, to pray for receptive hearts. Loved ones, we can't hear a sermon about hell without being moved with compassion for those who need Jesus. Lastly, if you're here today and you see that you need Jesus, I want to invite you to him. Jesus said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I'm going to pray. And if what I'm praying right now is what you're thinking and feeling, you just pray right along with me. I'm going to pray for a few different things. So you just say, yes, Lord, what he said. I agree, Lord, as I pray.